Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. There went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We shall uh, leave it there. Uh, we're looking, uh, friends, this evening at uh, uh, this second account of creation and my title uh, here is uh, The Garden of Eden. Very simply, The Garden of that God had prepared uh, for Adam and Eve to inhabit, to live in, to make their home, a paradise that he had prepared for them. But uh, just a couple of things to say before we uh, look at the text itself. Uh, firstly, Genesis chapter 2. Now, there are some people who would say this is a separate account of creation. Oh, when Moses was writing uh, Genesis, he had one account with him on his left side and another account with him on his right side. And he is giving us uh, both these accounts. So chapter 1 is one and chapter 2 is another account. And one of the reasons why they say like this is because the order uh, is uh, different uh, here. You can see, for example, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse uh, nine, uh, uh, 19 and 20, uh, that uh, the animals, it says, uh, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and so on. And that happened after uh, man. Well, that's different, isn't it, from what the order that we see in chapter 1, where we know that uh, the animals were created first and then a man was created. Well, how can we answer these things? Well, according to the experts, the Hebrew uh, gives chapter 1, think of chapter 1 as in chronological order, and think of chapter 2 as giving us the thoughts. It's not, so, according to the experts in the Hebrew, it's not so much, chapter 2 is not so much concerned about time and chronologically lo logging things for us. That's already done in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is giving us more the thoughts behind it. And uh, it's, as you'll see uh, here, uh, it, it focuses more on this garden and on Adam and Eve and the creation of, of man and of woman. This is what is more in focus here. Chapter 2 doesn't mention everything. There's no mention of the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars and the seas. That's all in chapter 1. So if you read chapter 2, bear that in mind. So when you read, how, how then do we interpret uh, verse 19? Well, it's very simple. You could say, and out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. And so in putting it in that context, then things begin uh, to make uh, sense. So do keep 
that in mind. But then we, in, in verse 4, also we come across a phrase that is uh, common and oft repeated some 11 times uh, in Genesis. These are the generations. And it goes on to say, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth. And it's referring uh, to, whenever you see this, it's referring to a new section that Moses is uh, introducing. Uh, not so much, he's not so much looking back to what he's just mentioned, but he's introducing something uh, new, uh, something uh, different. Uh, the, the word generations itself describes a, a forward movement rather than a look uh, backwards. So, for example, the next occurrence of this phrase is in Genesis 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then it's not going to tell us uh, about Adam because we already know about Adam. But it's going to maybe tell us a little bit more about Adam, but it'll tell us more about his posterity. It's taking us forward in, that, in the narrative and uh, not rather than looking back. It's, the word uh, narrative, uh, generations is like offspring, isn't it? What's, what's going ahead, uh, the origins and the offspring. And so that's what is more in mind, going forward. So here in Genesis chapter 2, a new section uh, is beginning. And after Moses tells us about uh, the creation of man, uh, and uh, then he, he moves us forward and tells us about the fall, and he's going to tell us about Cain and Abel, and so on, until the next section begins in chapter 5 and uh, verse 1. So just with those two sort of technical points, we just move into the actual uh, text itself. So these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, when, which were, when they were created, in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth. Verse 5 is connected with verse 4. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. And the thought uh, here in verses 5 uh, and 6, and I'll just summarize it really uh, for you, instead of just uh, reading it. But what this verse is, is telling us is that uh, before there was any rain on the earth, before these natural processes were in place, we all, we all know for trees and plants and flowers to grow, there must be rain and there must be uh, men and women to till the ground, to look after it, to cultivate it in order for it uh, to flourish. But before there was rain in, in the earth and before even man was formed, God created the original, we could say. God created the first trees, the first plants, the first shrubs, the first bushes, the first flowers were his creator, without anything natural. It's the work of uh, his hands. And subsequent to that, the rain, the natural processes, as it were, comes in. Subsequent to that, there was this mist uh, we read about in verse 6. A, a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. A uh, vapor rose uh, from the earth and fell uh, as rain uh, to the ground. And so this natural process uh, of uh, uh, watering the earth uh, begins. And verse 7 tells us the next thing that's necessary for the cultivation and of land and vegetation 
and that is the forming of man to look after it and to till, uh, till the ground. So uh, this is uh, really what's in mind uh, here. So in verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. He formed a man of the dust of the ground, that is, uh, his uh, body. The word form here means uh, fashioned or shaped to, or molded into a, a form, like a potter shaping uh, pottery or like a goldsmith maybe would be making uh, idols. So God here is shaping uh, our bodies, molding it into a particular form. How amazing, isn't it? From the very dust, God is able to take the dust and to deform such amazing bodies as we have. Our soul itself is wonderful and amazing, but here we're talking initially about the bodies. Billions of cells uh, in our bodies, multiple organs, our muscles, our sinews, all that we have, uh, all this is made uh, from uh, dust. It's uh, so contrary, isn't it, uh, to what evolution says. Evolution says that all living organisms, well, they just develop from one single cell. Well, we find that very hard uh, to believe. It's that somehow they say, this is their own words, you know, by chance, you know, the chemical and protein elements, it sort of just came together in one cell. And life began in, in that sort of way. And from that simple beginning, gradually life became more and more complex. And we uh, e eventually evolved at some stage, maybe a million or so years ago. Well, you need a lot of faith to believe that. Much more faith than you need to believe that God created man and God uh, created him in this wonderful way with body and soul. But especially when we know as well today, in science even, we know so much about one single cell. We know how complicated one single cell is. It's not just even a simple organism. It's, 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 it's got so, many machine, much, so much machinery within one cell that, that's needed to keep it going. And we know that if, if they don't, all the parts don't go in a certain order, that cell cannot exist. It cannot function. It will be, uh, be broken down. But uh, so one particular cell in itself is greatly uh, complex, and uh, and yet here we see that the biblical the biblical uh, way of uh, God created man already a full man a full woman with billions of cells uh, in his body and made from dust amazing and yet our bodies are functioning so doctors take a long time to study it and still cannot fathom it. It's so wonderful, it's so amazing. Yes, and there's still many things about it which baffle us. And, and, but though we are so fearfully and wonderfully made and we give God thanks for our bodies, it's only dust. Really, it's also, and there's a lesson in that for us, isn't it? To remind us, yes, we are special. Yes, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. Yes, we are made in God's image and likeness and we mustn't forget that. And we mustn't place ourselves on a level uh, with uh, the animals, but at the end of the day, we are still dust. And our, uh, the, the dust is there. We are re reminded of this and told these things 
to keep uh, humble, so that we will not lift up ourselves, we will not get carried away with ourselves and think how great and how wonderful we are and lift ourselves up against the Lord. Matthew Henry says it very well, and only, as only Matthew Henry could, he says, man was not made of gold dust, uh, powder of pearl, or diamond dust, but common dust, dust of the ground. And uh, that's what we are, isn't it? Uh, special, made in God's image, yet we are feeble. Feeble, so easily uh, blown away uh, by the wind and by, uh, by time. Significant, and yet also insignificant. Well, there's another part to us. We're not just body, but we are also a soul. And that's what's intimated in the, the second part of verse 7. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is unique. God didn't do that with the animals. When God created the animals, God said, let the earth bring forth, and they came forth. When God created the sea creatures, God said, let the waters bring forth, and they brought forth. But here, it's different. Here it's God breathing uh, the breath of life into Adam. And this is something special that is going on. This is God giving to Adam not only biological life, but also a spiritual life. In giving him biological life, yes, man became a living soul, but God did something extra with Adam and with, Ma with Eve. He gave to them a spiritual life. Hebrew is so interesting because the Hebrew has it God breathed into his nostril the breath of lives it's life, it's sort of life it's the breath of lives it's in the, the plural not only God gave us not only biological life when he made us but he gave us a consciousness and an awareness of, of, of ourselves he gave us a rational life a thinking life he gave us a communicating life he gave us spiritual life. All these things communicated to us. A life for now in this world and a life for the one that is to come. Here is the Lord planting within us, breathing into us an immortal soul. And so man made in this way, made, he's distinguished. This is what distinguishes him from the animals. This is what makes him so much higher than the animals, that he has this life. If you're an animal lover, and sometimes I upset people when I say this, but I'm sorry, but once they die, that's it. You know, once they die, uh, they, they go into the, the grave, and that's, that's the end of them. But for us, our, our, our bodies... Uh, go into the uh, go back to the dust as uh, we were, we like when we were first made, but our souls go on forever, and uh, we go up as we know to meet our Maker. Our bodies return to the earth, but our spirits rise up uh, to God. So different. We are we have souls that cannot uh, perish. Animals have life, but not like we have it. You look at animals, where they just basically just foraging around for food and looking, think about just the very basic things of life, like where to build their nest or where to, to find their next uh, food for their, for their little chicks or whatever. And uh, we're so much more. And we're thinking, reasoning, communicating, in contact 
uh, with our maker in a, re in a rational way. So from there we move on to in verses 8 uh, to 14. And here we see the Garden of Eden that God had uh, prepared uh, for man and for woman. A special garden uh, allotted to them. Eden, uh, some, I think it's the Latin Vulgate and the, also the, uh, the, the, the Septuagint, which translates it as paradise. And that's what it was. It was a kind of paradise that God uh, created. Some people are very curious uh, to know where, where is uh, this place? Where is the exact location of the Garden of Eden? And some say, oh, it's in the mountains of eastern Turkey. And others would say, oh, it's at the head of the Persian Gulf. It's underwater, submerged underwater there. But we don't know is the real, the, the real answer. And even if it was, the exact location was located, but we'd never, it would never be like what is described for us here because the flood came and the flood would have destroyed it and it would never, never look like what uh, we have it here in Genesis 2. But it was at the beginning here such a delightful place, a place that God made for man to enjoy, to find her happiness in. And here we read in verse 9, Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. All sorts of food, all sorts of fruit and vegetation are there for him uh, to enjoy, uh, but also things to please him, things to make him happy. And those of you who are into gardening and appreciate flowers so much more, what you would find uh, the, the Eden such a wonderful place to be, an aesthetically pleasing sight. God, this is what God is interested in. He's interested, friends, in our happiness. He's interested not just in, in giving us the necessities of life, but in fulfilling those desires that are within us to delight us, to comfort us, to give us rest. And what vibrant colors and fragrant uh, flowers were found in this place. And it was a, a wonderful and beautiful place for a man to reside in and prepared for him. And in the midst of these two, of these garden were these two trees for them to also take notice of. And we'll talk about them in a minute, but the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then verses 10 to 14, we read about a river that passed through Eden and from it separated into four heads. But I want to come down uh, really to verse uh, 15. In verse 15, we have here again, the language is actually uh, very interesting. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And uh, the thought doesn't really, doesn't quite come out uh, through in, uh, here in the English when it says the Lord took man and put him into the Garden of Eden. It sort of maybe gives us the idea that God sort of transports him from one place to another place. But that's the, not the thinking. The, the, the thought behind that word put is more, more an idea of God inclining him, God reasoning with him, God speaking to him and saying to him, uh, come, let me show you the garden, the home that I have prepared for you. Almost like he's taking him by the hand. 
Come, let me show you the place where I want you to, to settle down and to find uh, your uh, happiness. This is uh, the idea uh, here. So it was, this garden was meant to be, as we said, a place of rest, uh, a place of peace for uh, this, this uh, Adam and Eve to uh, enjoy and to find peace and happiness uh, there. But it was also, as we read here, a sphere for them to work. They were not only to be idle and just sit back and have everything done for them, they all had to be busy. They had to put their hand to the plow. They had to work uh, for, uh, for things uh, there. They had to uh, up, upkeep the garden. God gave them uh, this work uh, to do. Uh, we read that at the end of verse 15. God put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. He had to cultivate the land, to attend to it, to protect it maybe from uh, wild animals who come again looking for, for food uh, in, uh, in that garden. And he had to maintain it. Even though there was no thorns, there were no thistles and there were no weeds, there still there was a work uh, for them to do. They were to be busy uh, and not to be uh, idle uh, in that garden. Man's first job was a gardener. And uh, he enjoyed it. He loved it. And he found, we could say, job satisfaction uh, in what uh, he was given uh, to do. Well, friends, here uh, in this verse is another creation ordinance. We looked last week at the Lord's Day, uh, this cre that creation ordinance, something that is applicable for everyone, something that was in place uh, before the fall. Well, here is another. Man's responsibility is to work. He has, he's not to remain idle. He's not to remain unemployed unless through sickness or uh, old age or something that he is, he is prohibited from doing that. But uh, otherwise, if he has his wits about him, well, he is to give himself to some kind of vocation. So he's to take up some kind of calling. The fall has made work more of a burden, isn't it? Less pleasurable than it would have been. And now we have to struggle and work by the, the sweat of our brow. But that, this ordinance is still in place. We still need to give ourselves to employment. <laughs> Today, people are pushing for a four-day week. Four days. What are they going to do on three days? Two days already. Four days. Uh, three days rest. One cannot imagine it's the way things are going. It's going to be more pleasure, isn't it? Let's give ourselves to more self-seeking. Let's give ourselves to more pleasure. Let's go on more. We can take a longer holiday. Already they talk about the long weekend. Well, that would be an even longer weekend. Not to honor God, but uh, I think that would be, I, would, I wouldn't be so much in favor of that because it's taking us away from what is clearly a biblical principle for us uh, to follow. Well, uh, it's also here, we could say, a lesson in, in stewardship. God placed Adam uh, in the garden and gave him the responsibility of looking after it and taking care of it. And uh, it's the same for us. Uh, he had to steward that garden. And we also have to be good stewards. God has given us uh, so many things. We have possessions from him. We have uh, responsibilities given to us to look after those possessions, to look after whatever uh, good gifts we have received from him. How are we managing? How are we handling uh, those things? Are we faithfully 
stewarding, are we good stewards of those things entrusted uh, to us? But then uh, finally, in verses 16 and 17, we have God as our lawgiver. Uh, Adam, here we see, is informed of his moral obligation to know, uh, to obey rather, his maker. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of, knowledge, of non, the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is, uh, this is man in his unfallen state. His unfallen state, and uh, here God is, he, he, uh, is communicating to him his moral obligation. He knows as an unfallen man, an unfallen woman, this is right, and this is what you must do, not take uh, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he knows it's evil. He knows already in his mind, before he has fallen, that it would be wrong for him to take uh, from uh, that particular tree. So man uh, is that, this moral being. And here we see in these verses, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, uh, that uh, God has, is making a covenant. A covenant is being made between God and man, what we know of as the covenant of works. Adam and Eve, well, they could eat of every tree in the garden except one. That in itself is so wonderful on God's side. Just one tree. Uh, they, they couldn't take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was a test. It was a trial to see, will Adam obey or will he uh, disobey? Obey and, well, uh, he and uh, his progeny, well, they would live forever. Disobey and they would surely die. They would begin to die. Die biologically and also they would die uh, spiritually. Well, friends, there's nothing un unusual about these two trees. Don't take it as if the fruit had some quality inside it, some, something very special in the fruit, which if you take of it, gave you life. If you ate from it, it would give you some special life. That's not the idea here. Or if you ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that, that's, that was sin or there was something in, in the fruit itself to corrupt a person. No, the trees are only symbolic. That's all they are. The tree of life uh, spoke of, uh, of which they were free to eat as well, actually. But it represented the life that uh, Adam and Eve had re received from God. As long as they obeyed God, as long as they continued in obedience to God, they could enjoy that life with God. That life in the garden, yes, and a life of communion with God. That will continue on and on and on. And that test, once it was passed, it would have led to them being uh, forever, eternally in that fixed state. But uh, uh, continuing in relationship with God. But the, if they partook of the other tree, which is also symbolic, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if they disobeyed God and ate of that tree, well, then they would become conscious of good and evil. They would become uh, sensibly conscious of good and evil, conscious uh, of the great good they had lost. They would become aware 
of the, the, the things that they had lost, the, the, the things that they were now before enjoyed, but now cut off from, even a relationship with God. Now they could no longer access a God. Now they could no longer have a fellowship with God. And they would feel the loss of that good in their souls. And they would also be conscious and sensible of evil, knowing by experience uh, and in everyday life what it is uh, to, have, uh, to have sinned against God. Well, this was the test that God uh, placed uh, for them. And as we all know, well, that our first parents, they failed this test. It was no small sin, as we shall see in chapter 3. It resulted in death or uh, in deaths, we could say. Just like when God breathed, he breathed lives, lives into them. Here also, as a result of their sin, there would be multiple deaths that they would uh, face, that they would come into, that they would experience. Physical death they would experience, spiritual death cut off from God, and eternal death forever cut off from God if they uh, hadn't come to Christ. So uh, uh, Adam and Eve here ex were, ex uh, after the fall, after that failure, they were expelled from the garden, uh, expelled from paradise, and that access to that tree of life was denied to them. Remember how the angels were placed at the garden, again as a symbol that man had lost his right to life and uh, that spiritual life. Well, thank God it's not the end. The story doesn't end there, as it were. The narrative continues because we know that in Christ that access has been restored again. Christ is the tree of life also, we are told. And through him, we come to him, we can live again uh, spiritually. We can be brought back into this relationship with God. We can have an everlasting life. We can partake uh, of through Christ, we can partake of that eternal life. I, the, Lord, the Lord said so many times, I give unto them eternal life. Through faith in him, we are restored to better things than even Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. 